This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed. Thanks for joining me this week. We're going to begin this time with the adventures of Sam Spade. We'll hear his story from November 19th, 1947, titled The Bow Window Caper. After that, it's the adventures of Philip Marlowe and the Green Flame. His story from March 26th, The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Detective Agency. Hello, sweetheart. It's only me. Oh, Sam. Why so modest? Women, Effie. Age cannot weather nor customs stale their infinite variety. Huh? Against their incalculable wiles, mere man is a leaf in the wind. Oh, Sam, do you really... Oh. Who was she and how windy was it? Cyclonic, Effie. We had to close every window in the house. If you will just contain your natural feminine curiosity for a few moments... I'll be right down to dictate my report on the bow window caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. To every man who says, I don't use a hair tonic, or I don't believe in a hair tonic, I say this. Decide for yourself, but don't decide until you've tried Wild Root Cream Oil, the entirely different hair tonic. There's not a drop of alcohol in Wild Root Cream Oil, and it contains soothing lanolin. What's more, it grooms your hair the right way, neatly and naturally. So get the big economy-sized bottle and the handy new tube at your drug or toilet goods counter. Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. A bow window is a bay window that you look into instead of out of. Look into instead of out? Oh. Oh, Sam. Get your book, Panther Girl, and slink on in. What was she trying to see through the the, the bow window? Hmm? I mean, whose house was it? Her own. But if it was her own house, then why would she... It just goes to show you, darling, what some women will stoop to. It does? Mm Mm-hmm. It was a low window. Oh. Well, whenever you're ready, Sam. Uh, date, November 10th. 9th. 9th. Uh, correct. 1947. To Dr. Helmut Ries. I was right for once. Yeah. From Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the bow window caper. Dear Dr. Ries, I know that this report will not make pleasant reading for you, but you paid for it, so here it is. 
As far as I was concerned, it all started on Thursday morning when you called at my office. From your story, I gathered it had been going on for some time. You, you will say these are merely the actions of a jealous woman, Mr. Spade. But I assure you there's more to it than that. It is, it, it, it must be a carefully thought out plan to ruin my career, my, my whole life. In uh, what way, Dr. Reese? She spies on my private consultations. Insults my women patients. I can no longer even keep a nurse for more than a week at a time. Scenes, hysterics, she outbursts of violence. I cannot continue my work under such conditions. Well, why don't you give her a divorce? Why, no, no, no. This is not her desire. If it were, it would be, it would be simple. No, she wants to bring me to ruin. She wants to see me on my knees in front of the pocket. Why? That is what I want to find out. Why? Doctor, I think you ought to take this case to a head doctor. I have consulted a psychiatrist. The examiner. She's perfectly competent mentally. So you see, there is here already some mystery. For which one comes to a detective. Uh, how long has this been going on, Dr. Reed? Since three months only. But in this time, she has reduced me to utter desolation. Dr. Reese was a very good divorce lawyer right down the hall from my office. No, no, no. I discussed the matter of a divorce with her a few days back. This was her answer. Uh, You see, a receipt for the purchase of a gun and this note in her handwriting. I hope you will not force me to use this. Esther. Yes. What do you think she has in mind? Murder or suicide? She refused to discuss it. But one thing I have noted. Since she has bought this gun, a new development, a strange man watches my house. Several times I have caught him following me. Well, she might have hired a detective to check on whether you visit a lawyer. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it is very simple, but it is all too strange to be harmless. I uh, half-heartedly agreed that it might be, Dr. Reese, and when you checked for 100 bucks didn't bounce, I went to work wholeheartedly. I reached your house on Pacific Avenue just as the streetlights were going on. It's a quiet neighborhood, so I could hear it before I got close enough to read the number on the door. Get out! They seemed to be slugging their way toward the back of the house, so I decided to risk an entrance. I found the doorbell, and I was about to punch it when I caught sight of your mystery man. He was crouched in a clump of shrubbery that grew under the bow window at the corner of the house. He was still there with his eyes glued to the window when I walked up behind him. Hey, let go of me. Let go. Come on, come on. You're going inside. Listen, I'm not just a snooper. I'm I only... didn't say you were. I'm just inviting you inside for a better look. Now, I'm warning you, if you don't let go of me, I'm... Stop squirming, will you? Oh! The kick he landed on me wasn't according to the wrestling association's rules, but I let him get away with it mainly because I couldn't move for three or four minutes, and by that time he disappeared down the street. When I recovered my faculties and staggered back to the door, I didn't bother ringing the bell. I just walked in. The hen fight was still going on somewhere in the upper reaches of the house. Then a door burst open on the upper landing, and a girl in a nurse's uniform ran down the stairs toward me... Pursued by a pale little woman with a pinched face who was brandishing a pair of brass fire tongs. You brushed past me, Dr. Reese, and headed off the pursuer. Esther, stop it! Stop it at once! Have you gone crazy? Give me those fire tongs! Give them to me! What's the matter, Helmut? Afraid I'll mar your light of love's beauty? What started this? I caught her creeping about the kitchen. She was going to poison my food. Explain to you, Mrs. Reese. The doctor... Oh, don't, don't, don't bother explaining, Miss Roberts. 
It's morbid fancies of hers. Don't think I don't know what goes on in that office. That office where I'm not allowed anymore. That's only because you make the patient so nervous, Esther. I know what goes on. You and those women. That will do, Esther. Go to your room. Very well. But I won't have that woman in this house another day, Helmut. Is that understood? Go to your room, Esther. I'm going. I'm going. But remember what I said. I warned you both. I can't. There, there, Miss Swabbins. Now don't. There. I can't stand anymore, Doctor. I tell you, it's making me a nervous wreck. I just... Uh, Dr. Reese, huh? Oh, Mr. Spade. You saw, you heard? Yeah. Uh, uh, Come into my office. We'll talk. I think we'd better. Uh, Doctor, there's still one more patient waiting to see you, Doctor. Well, uh, have her wait a little longer. Uh, uh, this, This way, Mr. Spade. Oh, the doctor way. will see you just as soon as he possibly can. Have you been feeling any better, Mrs. Cranwell? Uh, sit down, Mr. Spade. Thanks, but I can say what I have to say standing. Your wife's a very tragic woman, doctor. Uh, I wish I could help her. I wish I could help you, too. But I can't. You heard her threat against Miss Robbins. Was that a joke? There's nothing funny about jealousy. Uh, but there is this man who watches the house... The gun she bought. I collared him outside just now. Oh, well, did you get him to talk? No, but I wouldn't worry about him if I were you. And about that gun, the Constitution says every citizen shall have the right to bear arms. Even Parnell Thomas can't do uh, Mr. Spade, I've not yet told you all. If I... Oh, Doctor, I'm, I'm sorry yes. to interrupt, but this patient, she's been waiting for more than an hour. Well, who, who is she? Mrs. Cavanaugh. Cavanaugh? Cavanaugh, who? Well, has she been here before? Of course, last week. Here, here's her card. Oh, oh yes, yes. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd better get it over. Uh, send her in. Yes, Doctor. And, and Doctor, I'm resigning. I'll finish the day, of course, and, and then I'm through. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, well. Very well, Miss Robbins. I, I, I can't say that I blame you. Good luck. Goodbye, Doctor. Well, I'll be going along myself now, Doctor. Uh, no, 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 no. You must hear me out, Mrs. Spade. I have not yet told all. If now, if you'll just wait until I have seen this patient, uh, please, Mr. Spade, please. Okay, I'll wait outside. Oh, I beg your pardon. I beg yes. your... Uh, c- come on in, Mrs. So, uh, you're leaving the doctor's employ, uh, nurse? I am, I am. Well, Mr. Spade, how does it look from the grandstand? Messy? Mm-hmm. You don't mind if I finish cleaning out this desk? Go right ahead. Thank you. What's the matter with Esther, anyway? <laughs> I could sum the whole thing up in a single five-letter word, shall I? You have. Are you going to walk out on him? Aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. Oh, but Esther isn't jealous of your type, if you don't mind my mentioning it. I feel heartened to think that you noticed I was different. Oh, I did, Mr. Spade. I really did. You don't seem uh, particularly nursey to me, either. I'm not. My, you have a fast pulse, Mr. Spade. Uh, yes, I've uh, been feeling very weak the last few minutes. I uh, need care. Oh, you know, you don't eat enough apples, Mr. Spade. Well, I guess I've finished up. There's that old contact. I wonder. Mr. Spade, will you tell the doctor I've left and thank him for me again? Aren't you going to see him before you go? No, no, I'm not. He'd only beg me to stay, and it... Well, it's simply out of the question. Oh, the poor guy. I just don't know what I'd do if I were in his place. 
for you, Mr. Spade. I did, and I told her. She told me I was a victim of hypertension and left me with my mouth open and no thermometer in it. Five minutes after she'd gone out through the front entrance, your wife came down the stairs looking knowingly at me and the door to the doctor's office and left by the same route. Ten minutes after that, I was halfway through a 1937 National Geographic that was the latest edition on the waiting room table, and it reached the third paragraph on the natural beauties of Winona County, Minnesota. But I never finished it. I will be back in a minute. first thing I saw when I entered the room was Mrs. Cavanaugh, your patient patient. Why? Why didn't he do it? You, doctor, were standing over her, nervously twitching off the rubber glove from your right hand. You tested her throat for pulse, then listened through a stethoscope. It was purely a formality. One of the 38 caliber slugs had entered the right temple. The other had torn through the base of the skull. How did it happen? I, I don't know. I had completed the examination and walked over there to put my instruments away. When I turned, when I turned back, she had a gun in her hand. Before I could stop her, she pulled the trigger. Suicide, of course. Why? Well, I just told her the truth, that there was nothing I or any other doctor could do for her. That she had perhaps a month, perhaps less. She had suffered great pain, of course, for some time. Uh -huh. You saw her shoot herself, you say? Yes, yes. The gun, she took it out of my desk drawer. I'd removed it from my wife's room earlier today. I see. Well, Doctor, this is the neatest suicide I ever saw. No powder burns, and from the way she's lying, she must have shot herself in the direction of that window, at least ten feet away. She screamed before the shots were fired and had time to fire a second bullet into her head and throw the gun across the room before she fell. Well, Helma, at last it's happened, hasn't it? Esther, leave this room. I told Helma one of the husbands would catch up with him. Pretty, wasn't she? I don't remember this one. The expression on your face might have been horror or fear or both, Dr. Reese. But your wife was smiling. When my eyes left her face, I noticed a leaf clinging to the hem of her coat. It might have come from the shrub that grew up against the house. And her shoes were splashed with mud that could have and probably did come from the cultivated flower bed just outside the bow window. Makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Now, here's important news on good grooming. Better than four out of five users of Wild Root Cream Oil say they prefer Wild Root Cream Oil to all other hair tonics. Here is new and even more conclusive evidence that Wild Root Cream Oil is again and again the choice of men who put good grooming first. So if you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? The results were amazing. Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred Wild Root Cream Oil. And no wonder, it gives you the advantages that men consider most important. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally. 
relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose dandruff. What's more, non-alcoholic wild root cream oil is the only leading hair tonic that contains soothing lanolin. That's like the oil of your skin. So ask for wild root cream oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, back to the bow window caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. Obviously, there were two equally good suspects in the Kavanaugh murder. Either your wife had killed her in a jealous rage, or you'd killed her with your wife's gun to frame her for the murder. I decided to let the police worry it out and went home to bed. The morning headlines were a bit of a surprise. Nurse sought in shooting a mystery woman, item. The cops had found Celeste Robbins' fingerprints all over the murder gun. And item. Mrs. Cavanaugh, the murdered woman, had given a vacant lot as her address, and her body was lying unclaimed at the morgue. I decided to pay her a visit. Maxie, hey, Maxie. My boy, hey, it's good to look on you. How are you, Maxwell? Oh, fine, fine. What brings you here, Sam? The Kavanaugh woman. The Kavanaugh, oh, Kavanaugh, huh? Well, let's see who's with us today. Uh, Stiftel, Milton, Schwartz, Kelly. I knew him, nice guy. Feige. Aha, Kavanaugh, Rose. Hello, Rose. Hey, Sam, don't you want to look at Rose? No, I've seen her. Ah. Yeah, just checked her back in. Autopsy. Say, you do collect queer ones, Sam. Mm. Now, you take her. Why would anybody in the world knock her off? In her condition, all they needed to do was wait. A month, a couple of weeks. Bad as that, huh? Worse. Anybody claim her yet? Well, they... Hello. Something we can do for you? My name is Kavanaugh. I've come for my wife. standing with his back to me, and I didn't get a good look at his face until he walked over to the desk with Master. The voice tipped me even before I saw the face. It was a man I'd caught outside your office window less than half an hour before the murder. If he recognized me, he didn't let it show. I waited while he went in with Maxie. When he came out, there were tears streaming down his face. I'd been waiting for two reasons. I had had some questions to ask him, and I had wanted to pay back that jolt he'd given me the night before. I left without doing either. Oh, sweetheart, any calls? Lieutenant Dundee of Homicide, yeah. uh, Dr. Reese, mm-hmm. and there's a girl waiting inside. Wouldn't give any names. So you let her wait in my private office? Well, I don't think you'll mind when you've seen her. She's by way of being a knockout. Well, uh, thank you, Effie. That was uh, very thoughtful of you, huh? You're welcome, Sam. Sam, please, please don't be angry with me for coming here. I had to talk to somebody. What you need is a good criminal lawyer, Nurse Robin. Oh, no. Oh, no, do you think I killed that woman? How did your prince get on that gun? And don't tell me she threatened you with it and you grabbed it out of her hand. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Nothing oh, at take all. Take it easy, nurse. Take it easy. Would you like a drink or something? No, no, of course. Thank you anyway. I'll, I'll be all right. Well, she came in from shopping three days ago. Just as nice as pie. And she came creeping around. You know how she is. And she said, I bought something today. It's lovely. And with that, she hauled this gun out of her handbag. And so, to humor her... I took it and I looked at it. That was foolish. 
certainly was fooled. When Nico played it, I did service the fingerprints. And I remember she was wearing gloves. Struck me as peculiar at the time, but I'm, I'm so stupid. I didn't think of it until just now. Everything's a little peculiar about this caper. A woman who was dying anyway gets shot. Nobody even seems to know who she was. Doesn't make sense. No. No, it doesn't make much sense. What should I do, Sam? Give myself up? I think you should. Yes, I thought you'd say that. All right, phone the police. You got a lot of courage. Sure you don't want to drink? No. No, thank you. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Homicide. Dundee. Uh, Dundee. Sam Spade. I got the Robbins girl here in my office. She wants to check in. Oh? Uh, well, tell her to forget it, Sam. Reese's wife just made a full confession. That tore it. In my anxiety to see how you were bearing up under the shock, Doctor, I blew a buck and a half of your money on a taxi all the way out to your address on Pacific Avenue. To my astonishment, you are wearing a look of real distress. I, I don't understand it, Mr. Spade. This confessing, it's, it's not like her. It's all too strange to be harmless. Dr. Reeves, I'd like to talk to you alone. Do you mind, Mr. Spade? Go right ahead. I strained my ears outside your consulting room, but all I could hear was a few vague murmurs. Then for no good reason, I decided to have a look at your wife's bedroom upstairs. The cops had been there before me, so I didn't expect to find much, and I didn't. I was tapping the woodwork for secret panels or something when I heard a heavy tread on the, on the stairway. I wheeled around, my hands inside my coat. A jolly-looking character in coveralls was standing in the doorway. Home Electronics. I beg your pardon? Jahagin, Home Electronics. <laughs> I come to take the equipment. What equipment? A dictograph. She don't need it no more. <laughs> Ask me, she hurt too much. Mrs. Reese had a dictograph installed? Yeah, her metal-type installation. Yeah, this here's a speaker. <laughs> yeah, my own design. Looks like a portable radio, don't it? Yeah, where's the other end? Where's the uh, microphone? It's in the doc's private office. Uh, you interested, eh? Yeah, turn it on, will you? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll get it tuned in a minute there. Uh... Oh, feedback. Wait a minute, I'll fix it. Let her talk. Let her talk. What can she tell? I don't know. But it's uncanny the way she can Nice, huh? Every word we <laughs> That's because of the dictograph. They rig, huh? Shut up. We cannot allow this terrible tragedy to come between us. We love each other. Nothing can change that. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's as nice, ain't it? Quiet, quiet. I just know, please, please don't. Now, now stop it, Helmut. I don't want you. Please don't. What is it, Celeste? What has happened to Jane? What has happened? You asked. When I've been attacked by a mad woman and accused of murder all in the space of 12 hours. But it's all over now. Just so, Helen. Yes, it's all over. Well, don't you turn it up a little more? Oh, sure, sure, Kenny. Hold it, hold it. It's over, it's over. And I'm very, very ashamed. I suppose it was my usual thing. I always get sorry for a poor, weak man and get involved. But this time, I'm sorry for her. So, yes, please. When I was a kid, I liked it. Used to make me feel powerful and, well, to watch them squirm. But it's no fun anymore watching another woman in the agonies of jealousy. And you, I thought you were just weak. You're a brutal, unscrupulous murderer. What are you saying, sir? You killed Mrs. Cavanaugh. Why, that's 
That's impossible. You stood deliberately in that window and you fired two shots right at Hey, what gives you? Why weren't my fingers on that gun? Because you were wearing your rubber gloves, Doctor. Celeste, don't say any more. No, no. Here, help me. Help me get his shirt off, Mr. Spade. He's been shot. Who shot him, you? <laughs> Through the window, the same man, the one who watched the house. Hold, hold this tourniquet tight, please. Uh, it's nothing. A flesh wound. His aim was bad. Yeah, too bad. Cavanaugh, you still out there? You got nothing to worry about. He's still alive. I missed him. Give me a hand. Come on. That's it. I missed him. That was lucky. You're taking the rap to your wife's murder, too, if you're a better shot. He did it. He killed my wife. I was at the window. I saw him. What I don't understand is why his wife confessed. She loves him, Mr. Cavanaugh. You should understand that. I guess that's what happens to love when it gets crossed up. Why didn't you tell the police what you saw? They'd have hung it on me. She she was a stranger to everyone else. I'd been quarreling with her, suspicious, acting like a maniac. She never told me. She must have been going to one doctor after another, trying to find one that would give her one ray of hope. In pain all the time, too, and never letting on. Never. Even after that first visit she made to Reese's office, I didn't tumble. I, I thought she was meeting him on the sly. And I followed her both times. That last time I carried a gun. I might have killed her if what I suspected had been true. Uh, I'm very sorry, Mr. Cavanaugh. I, I didn't realize. You're pretty late with your regrets, Doctor. I don't quite figure you either. Maybe the prison psychiatrist can. Dundee homicide. Uh, Dundee... Tear up Mrs. Reese's confession. Come on over and get the doctor. Dr. Reese? Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, he accidentally shot himself in the arm. Isn't that right, doctor? What? Oh. Yes, yes. Accident. Why didn't she tell me? Why didn't she tell me? I don't know, Kavanaugh. Women. Sometimes they make too much sense, or we don't make enough, or maybe we're all crazy. <laughs> And that, Dr. Reese, is the crop. At the risk of laboring a point, there's also the mystery of why a nice girl like Celeste Robbins ever fell for a guy like you. You'll have plenty of free time to think it over between now and the trial. If you find the answer, drop me a line. Period, and a report. You know, Sam, that, that Celeste, I like her. I wish we could do something for her. Well, I've already thought of that, Abby. Oh? What are you going to do, Sam? Write that up, sweetheart, and I'll write you a happy ending. Here's how you can find out whether the hair tonic you're using today is giving you what you ought to get in good grooming. Ask yourself, does my present hair tonic groom my hair neatly and naturally, or does it leave my hair sticky or greasy? And does it relieve dryness and remove loose dandruff too, or does it do just a halfway job? Unless you can honestly say that your present hair tonic does all that for your hair, you owe it to yourself to try Wild Root Cream Oil right away. Try Wild Root Cream Oil and see for yourself how it improves your appearance. Grooms your hair neatly and naturally, relieves dryness, and removes loose dandruff. It's non-alcoholic and contains soothing lanolin. Get the big economy-sized bottle and the handy new tube that's easy to pack when you travel and grand for the bathroom cabinet. Don't delay. Get it today. Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Oh, here's the report, Sam. You want to read it over? I do not. File it under F. But forget. About that poor Celeste, Sam. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I made a date with Celeste to take her dancing tomorrow night. She uh, needs cheering up, you know. Well, what for? Well, you said she needed help. Well, 
that isn't exactly the kind of help I had in mind. Oh. I don't see why it's necessary Effie, to take Effie, we must each of us give what particular kind of help each of us is particularly equipped to give. Very well. She wished to... She used to make over men just to get the other women jealous. That she did. Aren't other women silly to allow themselves to get jealous when they know just what she's up to? Idiotic. Just idiotic. Sure thing. And go home, Effie. I'm a lousy dancer. Oh, very well. Have fun, Sam. Good night, Sam. <laughs> Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. This is Dick Joy, reminding you that next Sunday, author Dashiell Hammett and producer William Spear join forces for another adventure with Sam Spade, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too, for quick good grooming and to relieve dryness between permanents. Mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. When it started, it was simple, just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition, and a match that burned with a bright green flame. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story The Green Flame. It had been the kind of early start, late finish, crowded in between day that had made breakfast coffee, lunch a ham sandwich on the run, and dinner nothing. So by the time it finally ended, it was pushing nine o'clock, and I was both a little tired and a lot hungry. All of which made the feast I could imagine spread out in front of me over an emerald green tablecloth something better than good enough to eat. Blue point oysters on a half shell, a Caesar salad, veal scallopini topped with mushrooms the size of silver dollars. Oh, I was ready for it. Yes. Yes, well, the oysters once again became a blue ashtray. The scallopia notebook. A green cloth underneath all my desk blotter. Hello, Marlowe speaking. Dodie Whitmore, Marlowe. Ever hear of me? I have. I've also heard you own half a dozen screen magazines, a local radio station, and a daily published for the motion picture industry called The Hollywood Trades. Is that covered? Not quite. Today I acquired something else. A libel suit for 100000 that was just slapped against the trades by a has-been actor named Bradford Colby, which, Marlowe, is the reason I'm calling you. Oh? So drop whatever you're doing, boy, and get over here to the Whitmer Building. Whitmer Building? We're on El Centro near Gower, and closed tomorrow's Sunday, no addition. Figures. 
When the night watchman lets you in, turn left, keep walking till you get to an office numbered 116. You got that? Yeah, 116. But if you don't mind, Miss Whitmer, I'd like to do something. I'd like to eat first. Make it coffee and a ham sandwich at the outside and get over here fast. Coffee? Look, Miss Whitmer, I'm starving. Marlo, you... how much do you get a day? 25 in expenses. Why? I'm willing to pay 125 and you keep track of the expenses. Now what do you say, boy? Boy says coffee and a ham sandwich will leave him stuffed. Goodbye, Miss Whitmer. <laughs> And if you smoke cigars, don't. I can't stand them. Drink? No, thanks. Marlow, our A1 gossip columnist, Stanley McGrath, had this to say in today's edition of The Trade. Mm -hmm. The sometimes actor, Bradford Colby, won't call it quits. When refused a part by an independent producer who's short on funds, Colby offered to hawk all and come up with 20000 if the producer would change his mind. The producer wouldn't. End of quote. And beginning of noise from Colby, huh? Yes, a clamor that we can only silence by proving that McGrath, what he said, is true. Which shouldn't be impossible, because Max was a thorough man and never heard of the word rumor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, was a thorough man? He died of a stroke, Marlow, at five this morning, en route to the hospital, age 61. Mm. His column, as usual, arrived here yesterday afternoon in the mail. He always wrote from his home, which is a junk-filled cracker box, upon North Brunton. And now you're being sued by Colby for damages, huh? The late Mr. McGrath isn't around to prove what he said is true. You catch. And <laughs> being very unpopular with producers myself these past 30 years, Marlowe, <laughs> I have no chance of any help from the one who actually turned Colby down for that part, whoever he is. All of which makes my job what? Precisely this. Fine Mac source of information. Come in, Larry. Larry North, Marlowe. My editor and anybody's Napoleon. Larry, meet Mr. Marlowe. Uh, how do you do? How do you do? Dodie, I've just found out that old Max only Lakeman, a queer duck named Leonard Phipps, left town sometime yesterday for San Diego. May or may not be back by now. Where's Marlowe going to start? Well, I figured... An old Max place. Larry and I have already checked there, Marlowe. 8312 North Bronson. Maybe you'll grab onto something that we overlooked. Here's the key. Thanks. Mac lived alone. Don't get wrapped up in his notes. That gibberish. And remember, my lawyers are sure that we lose this case if we can't prove... What Max said was the truth. Well, yeah, but All I... as soon as you get a lead, and if I'm out, Larry will be in his office next door. And, Marlowe, don't waste any time. There's a lot at stake, boy. What Dodie Whitmer had labeled a cracker box turned out to be a five-room, slightly beat-down, almost square house set back some 50 carelessly landscaped feet from a high stucco wall that said the late Mr. McGrath had lived alone and liked it. And when I entered and went to his study where I turned on a desk lamp, I saw what my client had meant by junk. There were the odds and ends that a man collects in a lifetime. On his desk, a tarnished loving cup for excellence in reporting, dated 1927. Beyond that, on the mantel, an autographed picture of Teddy Roosevelt, and next to it, a paperweight from Niagara Falls. And then... And then an item I hadn't expected. In a shadowed corner of the room, there was somebody else. A tall, gaunt somebody else wearing horn-rimmed glasses and papers sticking out of every pocket. He was slowly, an inch at a time, backing off from the edge of the circle of light in which I stood. I took one casual step toward the desk and then nailed him. Get your hands off me. Why? Take a start running, Mr. Leonard Phipps. How do you know my name? I'm psychic. I also know you just got back from San Diego. What I don't know is what you're doing here. Now, come on. Talk fast. Please let go. Leave me alone. I'll talk. Got nothing to hide from the right party? Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private detective, was working for Dodie Whitmer, a lady impatient to know which producer McGrath was talking about. 
In that article on Colby this morning, now do I qualify? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Of course, we're both after the same piece of information, Mr. Marlowe. Oh? I want to find that answer, too, and then whisper it into Dodie's ear. Just to save her 100000 bucks? No. Just to get a chance to fill McGrath's shoes. And don't laugh, because I've been ghosting that column for the past month now. Didn't McGrath write this morning's column himself? No, he didn't. I did. But the piece on Colby was not mine. McGrath must have added that himself, the fool. Well, you don't sound like you're happy in your work, Phipps. I wasn't. Mac was a tyrant. I put up with him because he promised sooner or later to let Dodie Whitmar know that I was doing his work. Don't be too bitter, Phipps. Mac couldn't have known exactly when he was going to die. Well, what if he could But to get back to the subject. Have you any idea where we can get a hold of something real to go on? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, Out there in the living room. Follow me, Marlowe. If you can, in the dark. Come back here. Out. I got to my feet, Phipps was gone. I found another lamp in the dark, turned it on, and started for the telephone. But then I stopped. In the center of the floor, where it must have fallen when the leg man made his wild break, was a wrinkled piece of paper. When I picked it up and turned it over, I was suddenly glad that Mr. Phipps had gotten away because, in his hurry to leave, he had dropped his checkoff list for Operation Bradford Colby. There were a half a dozen producers crossed off above the notation Max Place, but below that, and not yet discounted, was a name I'd never heard before. Sherry Sheldon. At that, I called Dodie Whitmer, gave her a quick rundown on what had happened with Phipps, and then tossed the name Sherry Sheldon in. She talked it over with Larry North before she answered. But when she did, I knew that finally we were all getting someplace. Marlowe, this is good. Larry tells me that Sherry Sheldon is the ex-Mrs. Bradford Colby. Oh? And better than that, a redhead with temperament to match. That kind will talk. Mm-hmm. Any idea where this item lives? Yes, a bungalow on Sheremoya. 5,800. 5,800, huh? Larry says it's a quiet, dead-end street, but not to let that throw you. Because from what he's heard about the lady herself, she's very much alive. So play it smart, boy. You're probably in the big time now. Good luck. It's only a furlong plus the bungalow on Sheremoya, so when I pulled up and parked away from number 5,800, I was still wondering exactly what play it smart boy meant. And the lady in question was known far and wide as a shock of red hair capping so much dynamite. But a minute later, as I walked toward the house, I labeled that thought introspection, dismissed it, and concentrated instead on an acre of tweed jacket that was unfolding out of a long, honey-colored sedan parked a little ahead of me. When it straightened up to something over six and a half feet, slammed the car door shut and stomped inch-thick, sold brogans off in a king-sized huff, I knew that this was an angry man. And in the next second... I knew that it and the thespian Bradford Colby were one and the same. When Colby got to Sherry's doorbell and jabbed at it impatiently for attention, I ducked below a hedge nearby. When the door opened and then slammed shut again, I left the hedge in favor of an on-the-bias palm tree that bowed toward Milady's chamber where I could both see and hear what had to be an exciting reunion. You said that you knew something that couldn't fail to intrigue me on this of all days. But now that I'm here, start intriguing Sherry, darling. All right. How's this for a starter? I want, to the penny, exactly one half of the money you're going to get from Dodie Whitmark. Oh, Sherry, how droll. <laughs> now, why in the name of the great American dollar do you think I'd give you so much as a sly glance at that delightful little fun? For two reasons. The first, I deserve it for putting up with both you and your abominable conceit for exactly <laughs> one year. Oh, still droll, darling. <laughs> Go on, keep laughing, Mr. Colby. Keep laughing while I light my cigarette with one of these matches, <laughs> these cute ones that burn with what? a green flame. Where did you get those? 
in a little known lodge out beyond Malibu called the Green Flame. Don't you remember, darling, I I ran into you there one day last week when you were having lunch with a mysterious stranger whom you tried to keep me from seeing. You nasty little sneak, Sherry. When you were so engrossed in keeping yourself between me and your guest that that you left the souvenir book of matches at the bar after you graciously lit my cigarette for me. What of it? They give those matches out by the thousands. That they do, but Brad, dear, they all don't have numbers penciled on the inside. Numbers? <laughs> what numbers are you talking about? Now who's being drawn? What are you getting at, Sherry? This. I had a call a minute before I got in touch with you from a delightful gentleman who's very interested in what I'm getting at. So here. Take your stupid book of matches and get out. No. I don't need them anymore. No, wait, Sherry. Now, please. Brad... I am going to have exactly one half of that easy money that's coming your way. And after the gentleman I mentioned and I get together, I may want more. So don't say anything you'll be sorry for later on. Just get out now. And don't come back until I send for you, dear Brad. It was the better part of a minute before Colby the actor quit running the gamut of theatrical expressions indexed under hate and Colby the man stopped biting down hard on his lower lip. Then, without another word, he slammed out of his apartment, ran to his car, and started off. I waited long enough for the steam in the room to condense, and then I walked to the front door and rang the bell delicately, the way I imagined a delightful gentleman like Mr. Leonard Phipps might. Yes? Can I help you? I think so, Miss Sheldon. It's only a matter of a simple question. Did you give that Brad Colby story to McGrath yesterday? Wait a minute. Who are you? Why, Leonard Phipps, of course. I talked to you on the phone, remember? Oh. Oh, yes. It was only half an hour ago, Mr. Phipps, and and yet in those 30 minutes, it's surprising how your voice has gone from tenor right down to bass. Good night, Not so fast, baby. It's out of my shoe shine. All right. Come in. I'll tell you what you want to know. I did give that story to McGrath. I I did it for revenge. I hate Colby. Uh Uh-huh. And when your revenge boomeranged and the ex came out 100,000 ahead of you, you decided to cut back in. Is that it? Yeah, that... Wait a minute. You've been listening. How else would you know all this about Brad and me? Same way I know you're a liar about giving McGrath that story. You're in, honey, is strictly something different like a book of matches that burn with a green flame and accidental meeting at the lodge of the same name. Let's take it from there. Yes, why don't you? Right outside where both you and it belong. Good night, mister. Marlowe, Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, Sherry. But tell me, why the hurry? Anxious to party your nose before Mr. Phipps arrives? Frankly, Philip... I'm anxious to do just about anything that doesn't involve talking to... What? What is this? Somebody's hit. Come on. He's over there near the curb. The car didn't stop, Marlo. No, and that scream sounded pretty... Pretty bad. Oh. Oh, he's... Dead, isn't he, Marlo? Yeah. That can mean only one thing to you, baby. To me? Why, who, who is it? Your late date, Sherry. One Mr. Leonard Phipps. In just a moment, the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, on the special program, One Great Hour, later tonight on CBS, President Harry S. Truman will be joined by Gregory Peck, Isla Lupino, and Quentin Reynolds to tell the story of what American religious groups are doing to bring relief to the world's war-stricken people. Be sure to hear One Great Hour tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS network stations. 
Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Green Flame. As the red-haired, sophisticated knives teared down at what seconds ago had been Leonard Phipps, the sound of the powerful car that had slammed the life out of him whirred into silence far down the street. All that was left of Stanley McGrath's overambitious leg man was a twisted, broken scarecrow, sprawled over the curb and half up on the sidewalk. It wasn't pretty. And the sight of it cracked Sherry's self-assurance like a rock through a window pane. When she stopped pressing the knuckles of one hand against her mouth and looked at me, she was scared. Clear through. Marla, this horrible thing. It was an accident, wasn't it? Oh, sure, sure. About as accidental as if they'd use a sledgehammer on him. Oh, oh yes. You only wish it was an accident because you're next in line and you know it. Remember, he was on his way to see you when this happened to him. I don't know what you mean. I mean, it's a high-priced game, baby, and they're playing for keeps. So you better level with me and fast. What's so important about those green matches? I don't know. You're a liar. You're going to wind up looking like Phipps here before the sun comes up. No, no, And tell me the truth, you little fool. Come on. I am, I swear. Phipps called me because he, he thought I might have given McGrath that story on Brad, but... I didn't. Then why was Phipps still interested? Why do he want to talk to you? Because I, I told him I'd seen Brad with someone at the Green Flame last week, and, and that Brad was very upset when he found me there. All right, who is he with? I don't know. That's not the impression you gave your ex-husband, beautiful? I was swinging in the dark, Marlowe. Five people left the Green Flame at the same time. I, I, I couldn't tell which one had been with Brad, but I'd know them if I saw them again, and Phipps thought that together we could figure out who it was. Go on. What about the numbers in that book of green matches? What were they? Eight, one, one. Eight, eleven? Yes. What does that fit? A hotel room? Well, I don't know that either. You mean it was just another swing in the dark? Yes, but it connected, Marlowe. It scared him when I mentioned it, so it must be important. Yeah? Take another look at Phipps, baby. See how important it is. Now try again real hard. Remember what eight, eleven means. Marlowe, I just don't know. Please believe me. Maybe you're just thick. Maybe you got too much nerve, but I'll tell you one thing, Sherry. I wouldn't be in your spot for ten times a hundred grand because I don't think you're going to live until morning. Oh, I didn't think that Brad would go this far. What, what, what I've told you is the truth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shut up. Somebody's coming. It might be Bradford. Now you get out of here. Well, I, I don't have my car. Take mine, that coupe. Here are the keys. Go down to the office of the Hollywood Trades. He won't show his face around there. Find Larry North or Dodie. Well, all right, but what about go you? Go on, will you beat it? stepped into the shadows of the trees that bordered the walk and waited. I heard Sherry slam the door on my car and burn five bucks worth of rubber off my new fist tires getting away. A second later, the visitor I was expecting showed up, but it wasn't Brad Colby. It was Larry North. He ran three bustling steps out into the street and watched my coupe scoot out of sight. Then he spotted the corpse. His mouth fell open and he tiptoed slowly toward it like he was afraid he might wake it up. When I moved out into the light, he saw me and turned. Uh, Marlowe! Do you know about this? Who is it? It's Leonard Phipps. Phipps? McGrath's leg man? Yeah. Driver didn't so much as look back. What a stinking break. Phipps in a hit and run accident at a time like this. Look, you jump to your conclusions north and I'll jump to mine. Eh? What do you mean? Phipps knew something fishy about that item in McGrath's column. And Sherry Sheldon knew something fishy about Colby. So from where I stand, Colby couldn't afford to let them get together. No accident? That's a daring observation, Marlowe. For a hundred thousand bucks, I know plenty of guys who do a thing like this every day in the week. You can buy a lot of distance with that kind of money. Hey, you're right, of course. What exactly does the Sheldon girl know? Did you find out? Only partly. Bradford's mixed up with someone else on this deal. Sherry doesn't know who, but if we can get the other tie-in, she'll be able to identify that person on sight. Yeah, uh, or did she... Did she have 
Have anything else? Number 811 in a book of matches. Mean anything? 811? Uh, no. Hey, no, hey, no. hey, come on, North. Quit yeah. staring at him. You're making yourself sick. Let's get out of here. Yes, yes, all right. I guess I better. Bradford Colby must be out of his mind. Maybe. I'll let you know. I'm going to drop in on him now before the cops do and check my theory over with him. Where does he live? Yeah, on Wilcox, a villa in the Midcliff Gardens. Marlo, I'm going in and talk to Sherry. Maybe I can find out who Colby's working with. Uh, she's not here. I sent her down to the paper in my car to stay with you or Dodie until things yes, cool off. Yes, but Dodie isn't there. She went out for some reason right after you called. There's no one there now but the night watchman. Oh, great. <clears throat> now, look. Drop me off at Colby's place, and you get down there and find Sherry. She's worth 100000 bucks to Dodie Whitmer, but only if she lives. Now, let's go. While the natty little Napoleon in the elevator scurried off to fetch his car, I ran inside. Put a fast call through to the police and submitted the shortest report on record of a hit-and-run death. By the time I got back, North was waiting at the curb with the door open. I piled in beside him, and ten minutes later, we glided to a stealthy stop on Wilcox at the ivy-covered archway over the Midcliff Garden Gate. Neat slices of amber light poured through a big Venetian blind on the window of a villa at the rear of the court. Miss North identified as Colby's. And the same breath reminded me that the actor was a strapping 6'6 and a desperate man. He urged me to be careful, and I urged him to hurry. And as he left, I walked toward the big window and saw Bradford inside, slumped deep in the lap of a suede easy chair, doing a solo with a bottle of Paul Masson champagne, and looking about as desperate as a sleepy St. Bernard. I walked around to the front door, decided to try the shock treatment to blast him out of his blasé attitude. Yes, what do you want? Get inside. Go on, move. Take your hands off me. You might have gotten away with that clipped up suit for damages, Colby, but you're not going to get away with murder. You killed Leonard Phipps, didn't you? What are you raving about? Who's Leonard Phipps and who are you? Name's Marlowe, and I'll tell you something, Colby. The only reason I'm not busy knocking your head off at this minute is because I want to hear the whole story right from the top. Now, first, who wrote that item in McGrath's column for you? Are you mad? McGrath wrote it himself, the venomous little creature. He and Dolly Whitmer used that to damage my reputation, and now they're going to pay for it. Oh, stop it. You knocked your reputation into a cock's hat every time you step in front of a camera. Well, Your damage suits are phony, and you know it. Now, where's that book of matches with the famous 811 inside? 811? Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, yes. Those that burn with a green flame. (laughs) You've been talking with my imaginative ex-wife, I see. She's burning with quite a green flame herself, isn't she? How that woman hates to see me get a Never mind. Where is it? If you'll allow me, Marlowe, I'll just answer this. Mm. Bradford Colby speaking. Mm. I see. Yes, I heard. That's right. I'll do my best, darling. At least ten. Goodbye, Helen. Just an old friend, Marlowe. You can let your eyebrow down again. Helen, huh? You know, you always were a lousy actor. I'm getting a little sick of you, Colby. And I've got a hunch I'm due for quite a stall, so start talking, huh? Where's that book of matches? Easy, Marlowe. Take it easy. Here it is. Come on, let's see it. Of course. Here, take a good look. Oh! What a character. Up to your chin in trouble and you make waves. Lousy snoop! Oh! That does it. Tough guy. You're not leaving, Marlo. You're staying right here. And just to make sure... Oh, you don't call me. You sucker. Should have loosened your corset. I waded through the chunks of glazed ceramics that Kobe had smashed on my head and worked hard to hold back the the wave of darkness that kept rising up under me until I made it to the kitchen where I splashed a few quarts of cold water on my face. Then I went back. 
Colby was still holding down the hooked rug he landed on in the book of matches that had started the argument was on the floor beside him. I picked it up and opened it. The number was there inside, written in blue wax pencil. But I thought I'd made a mistake. Until I realized that maybe Sherry Sheldon had made the mistake. When that idea hit me, it brought another one along, and I remembered oh. that Colby had received orders by phone to delay me. Oh, my. Then I knew I'd better hang on to my head and move, but fast. I rolled him over and found the keys to his car. He was halfway out the door when he came to. Hey, stop! Come back. You can't leave here. It's my exit, not yours, Hambone. Good night. It took all of five minutes to get from Wilcox to El Centro in Colby's long, honey-colored sedan. And on a hunch, I drove down the alley to the back door of the Whitmer building. The hunch paid off. Because I had stopped and turned on the parking lights. When the door opened and I saw exactly what I'd expected. The watchman was on the floor out cold. And the little Napoleon in elevated shoes was staging a big exodus with his arms full of a very limp redhead named Sherry Sheldon. As soon as he saw the honey-colored car, he started talking. Brad! Brad, you idiot! I told you to stay home! To do it! No, she's only unconscious. There wasn't time. We'll have to finish it someplace else. Put her in the back seat. All right. Here. Now let's get out. Marble! Don't move, little man. I'm too tired for any more trouble. I'll shoot first. So you're the boy on the inside with all the brains, huh? You cooked this whole thing up with Colby. He gets liable and sues Dodie Widmer for damages, and then you two split the settlement between you. Correct me if I'm wrong, North. You got your chance when McGrath died after turning in his copy. All you had to do was write that one libelous item included in McGrath's column, and nobody could ever explain where the story had come that from. That stupid fool, Bradford. I could never trust him to do anything right. Is that why you killed Phipps? Yes. And if Brad Colby had held on to you for another five minutes, I would have had time to get out of here. Yes. And so would I. Sherry, are you all right? No, not yet. Hey, hey. Oh. Where he and Brad are going, Marlowe, I'd never get another chance to even the score. Oh, baby. <sighs> you handle a spiked heel like Babe Ruth handled a bat. <laughs> he's out. Yeah, but Phil, you should see where what he hit me with. Oh, brother. <laughs> Come on, beautiful. It's time to turn out the lights, get in touch with Dodie, and call the law. Let's go. Uh, thank you, Miss Whitmore. Good night. Good night. Well, I'm glad those cops and the cigars are gone. Here, kids, help yourselves. You both look like you need it. This you can say again. And how I need it. <laughs> Marlo, you could have slid me through the hole in the lifesaver when you said my own editor, Larry Knopf, was it. Yeah, it gave me a joke, too, Dodie. Yeah, and me. <laughs> the hard way. But, Phil, I am sorry about that mistake I made. I could have saved us some trouble. What mistake is this? Well, you see, honey, we knew that whoever was working with Colby had written down a number for him in a book of matches. Sherry here thought it was 811. But when I saw it, it was upside down from that, so it came out 118. 118? Mm -hmm. Why, that's Larry's office number and phone extension. Check. Yours is 116, and his was right next door, I remembered. So, 118 was it. That, coupled with the fact that it was written in blue pencil, which is standard equipment for all editors, gave me the tip. Honest now, Phil. Hmm? Did you figure that out, or was it luck? Uh, well, it's a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know something? I missed dinner tonight. You know huh? I'm starving? Well, uh, I know a wonderful place. Uh -huh. They have uh, matches like this, uh -huh. see? It burns with a green flame. Will you join us, Dodie? 
Yes, yes, we uh, would love to have you. You'd rather have whooping cough. <laughs> Go on, you. Get out of here and good night. Good night, Dodie. Oh, and it will be from here on in. I guarantee it. supper was waiting for us at the Green Flame restaurant. It was all arranged by a call from Dodie. And it waited until it got cold because we didn't show up to eat it. There was something about the moonlight glinting on the ocean. And a certain stillness in the morning air that made food seem somehow unimportant. So when I finally dropped Sherry off at her place on Sherimoya... Went home to my apartment on Franklin. It was either very late or very early, depending on the viewpoint. There was just one lonely sardine and a cold baked potato in the refrigerator. So I ate. Then I sat down on my bed to light my last cigarette. But I wasn't disappointed when the match flared into an ordinary yellow flame. Happy Marlowe. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Faye Baker, Larry Dobkin, Myra Marsh, Howard McNear, and Parley Bear. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a grim joke that started when six heirs came to an ugly house on a rain-swept island to hear a madman's will. But the joke soon turned to murder. And in the end, it was hard to tell who had the last laugh. Tomorrow night, Helen Hayes stars in the famous comedy The Farmer Takes a Wife on CBS's Electric Theater. And Eve Arden stars as America's favorite schoolmistress, Our Miss Brooks. You'll delight in the expert comedy of these two great feminine stars when The Electric Theater and Our Miss Brooks come your way tomorrow night over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
that's it for Case Closed this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more from Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, more mysteries, science fiction, horror, strange tales, all kinds of stuff at relicradio.com. There's thousands of old-time radio episodes available there for you, alongside our Shoutcast stream and everything else Relic Radio. You can donate while you're there, help support this and all of the shows, or visit donate.relicradio.com for more information on that. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. I'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Case Closed. Thank you.